0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Why does the threat of a government shutdown always come down to the last minute for Congress? The lead starts right now. Only one day left to reach a deal, the Senate hits a snag over federal government spending while over in the House, what could be retaliation for rebellious Republicans planning to vote against making Kevin McCarthy speaker. And he was beaten by rioters on January 6th while defending the Capitol and democracy. Now the very first interview with a U.S. Capitol Police sergeant who is leaving his job. We'll talk to him about the incident back at work that led him to resign. Plus... Deadly tornadoes in the south, snow and ice in the north, the massive storm system on a destructive path. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start with some breaking news in our money lead, a stock sell-off as investors react to the Federal Reserve's forecast to tame inflation over the next year. The Dow closing down more than 750 points today. Let's get right to CNN's Matt Egan. Matt, what is behind this?
2: Well, Jake, it's been a bad 24 hours for the soft landing camp. I mean, markets are essentially betting against the idea that the Fed can tame inflation without causing a recession. Yesterday, Fed officials made clear that they're not done slamming the brakes on this economy. Inflation might be cooling, but not enough to get them to stop raising interest rates. And then today, there's new evidence that there are some real cracks showing in this economy. Uh, Retail sales unexpectedly tumbled. Some new manufacturing reports were Weaker than expected. Jobless claims were strong, but probably too strong if you ask the Fed. And so, if you put it all together, I think Wall Street is growing more worried that the Fed is going to slow this economy right into a recession. That's why we see the Dow closing down about 2.3%, 764 points, the NASDAQ down more than 3%. Um, Investors are clearly pricing in the growing risk, not certainty, but the growing risk. That there could be a recession here, Jake. All right,
1: Matt Egan, thanks so much. The focus is also on money in our politics lead today. An all-out scramble is underway on Capitol Hill right now to try to avoid a government shutdown. Funding is set to expire midnight tomorrow, just 32 hours from now. Lawmakers have already failed to reach a full-year spending deal. Now they're rushing to give themselves one more week, another grace period, to try to hash out the details with what's called a stopgap bill. The House of Representatives was able to pass the week-long extension last night. Republicans and Democrats in the Senate, however, are still battling over the details as we speak. This is how one Senate Republican described the current negotiations.
0: Look, this is like staring down both barrels of a double-barreled shotgun. My choices are worse than horrible.
1: As if that isn't dramatic enough, CNN has new reporting today about the bitter infighting amongst House Republicans over whether... Kevin McCarthy should be the new Speaker of the House. And now some McCarthy supporters are floating the idea of kicking his naysayers off their House committees altogether. Plus, in just moments, we have a CNN exclusive for you. The two top Democrats in Congress, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, sat down with our own CNN's Jamie Gangel for their first ever joint sit-down. This afternoon, the very first clip from that interview, Coming up in just minutes. But we're going to start on Capitol Hill with CNN's Manu Raju and Melanie Zanona. And Manu, let's start with this looming shutdown. What are the major holdups to getting this one-week deal passed?
3: Well, the challenge, Jake, at this late hour is that the Senate needs to get an agreement from all 100 senators in order to just simply schedule the vote for the one-week extension. And if one senator objects, that could delay things. And right now, they don't have an agreement. Some senators want amendments, and others want amendments on other issues, so they're trying to sort that out. There is an expectation it will pass tonight to extend government funding. Then there's a larger challenge, which is to provide a year-long spending bill, one7 $7 trillion, funding all sorts of government programs dealing with aid to Ukraine and other policy matters. But the Senators ha- and the House members have not seen the details of this agreement that has been in the works. One of those members who has cut those deals is Senator Richard Shelby. He is a retiring Republican Senator on the Appropriations Committee. He has come under sharp criticism from the House Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, who said that because Shelby is retiring, he should not have cut this deal. And they said instead should have punted this into the new Congress when Republicans Will be control of the house, and when I asked Shelby about that criticism, he pushed back.
4: He's running for speaker, and, and we understand that, and he's got to put a coalition of Republicans together. Uh, but we all know it's the best thing to do is fund the government when you're here. But you've gotten a better
3: deal next year if when Republicans are in charge. Well,
4: people say that, but I, it's been my uh, uh, experience of a long time here in the Senate that. Uh, another deal's another day, another deal never comes.
3: But the split within the Republican Party is profound at the moment. A number of Republican senators agree with Kevin McCarthy and say that this should be punted into next year. Others say it is time to get an agreement right now and simply are concerned that the new narrow Republican majority would have a difficult time passing anything. And it could lead to a shutdown. And as Lindsey Graham, who's, who's likely to support the larger bill, told me, he said, of the House Republicans, they're having enough problems trying to find a speaker, much less passing a bill. Yeah,
1: and on that topic, Melanie, uh, that fight for House Speaker is getting uglier every day and a lot of it's spilling out into public view. Tell us about this new suggestions on how to get these at least five publicly never Kevin House Republicans on board.
5: Well, Jake, this is really shaping up to be a showdown between the anti-McCarthy and pro-McCarthy forces inside the House GOP. Moderates especially really are worried about the potential for chaos on January 3rd, and so they're starting to explore a number of hardball tactics in an effort to push back and act as a counterweight to McCarthy's opposition. Sources tell me and my colleague Annie Greer that one of the ideas being considered is to offer a resolution to kick these members off of their committees if they don't fall in line. Another idea being discussed is threatening to oppose a rules package if it contains some of the most hardline demands that McCarthy critic are seeking, uh, and finally, they're also threatening to team up with Democrats if they can't elect a speaker to try to find a consensus candidate. But really, it speaks to all the tension and anxiety inside the House GOP right now as McCarthy is struggling to act on the votes. Jake.
1: All right, Melanie Zanona and Manu Raju with the chaos on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Turning now to that CNN exclusive interview, the first ever joint sit down with outgoing House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. CNN's Jamie Gangel just got back from speaking with the two Democratic leaders. Uh, Jamie, what's the big news?
4: Well, Chuck and Nancy, as, as Trump uh, called them, have worked together for 35 years. They finish each other's sentences. They pick their favorite Chinese restaurant mm-hmm. for this interview. I don't know why it's the first time that they, they're ever sitting down. We talked about everything from whether they played good cop, bad cop with Trump, uh, how they feel about who should be president Uh, in 2024, but we started with the impact that they think the January 6th hearings are having. People
3: saw the violence, Mm -hmm. they saw police officers being beaten, and people started, many people who don't follow politics that, you know, on a daily basis, the way some of us do, um, started worrying about what's going on in the country, and frankly, I think that's one of the reasons the election came out a lot better in the House and Senate than people thought, because they okay. saw the danger to democracy, but the good news here is they saw it. You know, we all worried, what is going to happen? Are we going to have a democracy? They're eroding away. Look what happened January 6th. Look at all these people who don't believe that the election was conducted honestly, even though it was And America rose to the occasion.
4: There's a CNN poll that just came out that shows there's little appetite on both sides for a Biden-Trump rematch in 2024. Uh, you're stepping aside. Do you think President Biden should step aside for a younger generation?
6: I think President Biden has done an excellent job as President of the United States. I hope that he does seek re-election. He's a person with a great vision for our country. He's been involved for a long time, so he has great knowledge of the issues and the challenges we face. And he's the most empathetic president. He connects with the American people. The vision, the knowledge, the strategic thinking is all here. The empathy is from the heart. And I think that he's been a great look president. look at what
3: he's accomplished. He's a lot of people, he should run again. Yeah, he's done an excellent, excellent job. And he runs, I'm going to support him all the way.
4: Right now, Donald Trump is the only Republican who has announced he could be the nominee. He could be president again. You've been through the first presidency. You've been through January 6th. What would it mean if Donald Trump was reelected president?
3: I don't think it'll happen. American people have gotten wise to him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Took a little while,
6: but they did. I don't think that we should talk about him while we're eating. (laughs) See, (laughs) Uh, We
4: will have more of the interview tonight on on, uh, Anderson Cooper at eight o'clock. I will say it's I've never seen the two of them quite like this before I attribute it to the Chinese food. But I also think As Speaker Pelosi is, I mean, she's not leaving Congress, but she's stepping aside. We're going to see more of Nancy Pelosi unleashed. Tonight, you will see her doing an imitation of Donald Trump.
1: Is that right? Interesting. All right. Must see TV. Jamie Gingill, thanks so much. And you can see Jamie's full exclusive interview with Schumer and Pelosi on AC 360 tonight at 8 o'clock Eastern, only here on CNN. Also on our politics lead, the Justice Department has charged demand who allegedly made multiple threats against members of Congress using anti-Semitic slurs, saying he would murder lawmakers. In response, court documents show some members of Congress had to get additional security. CNN Le- Senior Legal Affairs Correspondent Paula Reed is following this case. President Paula, t- Paula, tell us about some of the threats.
7: Well, Jake, the Justice Department says Mark Leandert left more than 400 voicemails for members of Congress. And court documents reveal that these threats included anti-Semitic, sexist and racist language and even threats of cannibalism against lawmakers. Now, staffers first contacted Capitol Police early last year after receiving some of these voicemails. But even after warnings directly from law enforcement, Leonetti allegedly continued to make these threats over the past two years. Now, it's interesting, Jake, court documents do provide some insight into his overall mental state. And mental health workers where he lived told law enforcement that he is a paranoid schizophrenic. And the officers who responded when these threats were made, they described their conversations with him as paranoid and nonsensical. Now, he was arrested on Wednesday. He now faces seven charges of interstate threats. That's a charge that carries up to five years in prison.
1: This seems to be part of a larger trend When it comes to threats faced by lawmakers, what is law enforcement doing about it?
7: Well, in this case, Jake, the U.S. Capitol Police, they had to assign additional security to some of the members of Congress. And here, prosecutors, uh, they want Leonetti to stay behind bars while this case plays out. But as you noted, this is part of a broader trend, where several members of Congress and their families, they've been attacked, they've been harassed and threatened over the past several months. Most famously, of course, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, who was violently assaulted in their home by a man who said he was there looking for his wife. Now, it's interesting, in this case, prosecutors actually pointed to the Pelosi case. And they said, look, in this case, voicemails have to be treated with caution because it's just difficult to evaluate when an individual who's making these kind of threats will actually act on them. And of course, this concern extends to other public servants, election workers, for example. The attorney general has set up an election threats task force to address the rise in threats against those officials as well. They've already brought at least six cases. Jake.
1: All right. Paula Reed. thank you so much. A U.S. Capitol Police officer badly beaten during the Capitol insurrection, is handing in his badge. Sergeant Aquilino-Gunnell says his last day on the job will be this Saturday, writing in a letter to his police chief, quote, having to return to the scene of the crime almost every day has become taxing, unbearable, and not conducive to healing. And we're honored to have Sergeant Aquilino-Gunnell joining us here in the studio on his first TV interview since announcing his resignation. Um, how does it feel to be leaving a job that you, you felt passionately about taking in the first
8: place? Thanks for having me. Um, it, it's tough uh, making that decision uh, after you know sixteen years, uh, almost half of my life, I uh, had dedicated to be a public servant, both in the military and also as a police officer. Um, and I'm not leaving because of my own of my own accord, but because they did that to me, uh, the mob and the people who continue to support. The former president, because your
1: injuries were so bad that you couldn't do your job anymore, and and also just your the
8: the, the PTSD and PTSD also the, yeah. the certain motion range of motions on my shoulder, uh, I'm I'm able to do a lot of things with my uh, with my arm, but I, I still have some limitation on it. So as uh, as a civilian, I, I could afford had the lux- I, I could have the lo- luxury to uh, walk away from an altercation or not making. Uh, if, if If it become violent or not as a police officer, I cannot do that so and the last straw
1: was it that somebody taped a, a photograph of Donald Trump to your work com- computer it, was that just the final straw
8: yeah uh, two months about roughly about two months ago, uh, normally I watch some of the videos uh, in relation to uh, doing investigation or do, writing reports or testimony for court, and I guess uh, some people Thought I was just obsessing about it, but not knowing that I was actually doing work for for the court and and continue my work as a police officer. And I took a couple of days off. And when I came back, uh, there was a a picture of Donald Trump uh, taped to my uh, computer screen.
1: Do you think it was somebody...
8: Joking around,
1: somebody being a jerk, somebody trying to intimidate you? What's your interpretation of it? I had
8: no idea, but I did. Uh, first, I, I crumbled it, put it in the trash, but then I, I said to myself, no, I, I can't let that happen and, 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 because that's going to entice them to do it again. So I, I reach out to, uh, I, I scan it, re- send it out to the chain command and tell them, like, this is un- unacceptable. Uh, and it, it is very insensitive of whoever did it, whether they they didn't uh, uh, um, jesting or not,
1: right? Because um, you hold Donald Trump responsible for the riot. That's that's correct. the reason. That's the point they were trying to get I guess. at. I guess. Speaking of January six, Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, she's been downplaying the riot since it happened. Last weekend, uh, she went to an event, uh, a New York Republican fundraiser, and she said that if she had led the attack, if she had been in charge of it, they would have quote won. Uh, take a listen
9: that we would have won not to mention
1: it would have been armed now she she later said she was joking but just to read that quote if Steve Bannon and I had organized that we would have won not to mention uh, it would have been armed I mean what's your response when you hear when you hear a
8: a congresswoman say that oh that's coming from the same person that when I was giving my testimony in January uh, on July last year uh, she was in front of the Justice Department uh, fighting for the, the patriots uh, because. Fighting for the people that have been arrested. For the people who have yeah. been arrested. And, and, and they, that's the kind of support that she thinks that we need. Uh, and the way I take it is that uh, based on her comments and her actions, uh, we were the, the police officer, were the bad guy, uh, not the other way around, which is kind of uh, crazy. Uh, because
1: it's not, she's not alone, though. I mean, that's Donald Trump's response, too. It's also, you know, I heard when you and your colleagues testified, people on Fox were making fun of you.
8: I mean, when you, if you take the, the whole incident of January 6th and you take it at their own house or at a courthouse, wouldn't they want people to be held accountable? And wouldn't they want the police officers to uh, take actions and, and, and prevent their own family members? Uh, from being attacked, because that's what exactly what happened. Uh, the, the attack at the, the Capitol happened to them, and had it not been for the action that myself and my, and my colleagues, uh, along with the other agencies uh, that came to, to support us, it would have been a bloodbath. And there's no doubt in my mind that... Oh, no, of course. You guys that, are that, heroes, yeah. That in, in, in their mind, we were the, ba- the, the people who were storming the Capitol, which is uh, ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, we were there doing our job, and had it not been for for our actions, uh, there would have been a lot of members of Congress and senators, uh, and, including officers, who have been would have been de- dead that day. You think they would have been killed if yes. you guys had? Yes, I mean they, that's what they were saying yeah. to me at the police line before we lost it. What are you going to do now? Um, I'm writing. I'm just just completed a uh, a book. I turn it in today. Um, it's called uh, the American treason. Uh, that's what I'm focusing now on, on healing my uh, from my injuries and taking away doing exercise, beginning to exercise a little more. Um, plan B, I don't know. I don't I don't have one yet, but um, I'm open to suggestions. All right. Well, we'll have you back for sure. Thank you so much,
1: <laughs> Sergeant. And thank you for your service. You're welcome. Both as a police officer and in the military as well. Thanks for having thank you me. Thank you so much for being here. This hour, we're also following that deadly tornado outbreak, the widespread damage after nearly 50 tornadoes over two days. Plus, the growing calls to put new restrictions on TikTok. My guest ahead wants to go even further and see that app banned. And stunning revelations from Harry and Meghan in the final episodes of their Netflix documentary, Why the Prince Says His Brother William Screamed at Him at what opened the floodgates of criticism toward the couple. Stay with us. The same weather system responsible for snow and ice in the northeast today is also to blame for nearly 50 tornadoes that have ripped through the south. In just the past two days, they've left behind a trail of destruction, especially in Louisiana, where at least three people were killed and dozens injured. CNN's Nick Valencia is just south of New Orleans for us. Nick, what are you seeing? Well, the damage
10: here is widespread, it is extensive, and just as we started this report, we saw some heavy equipment coming in through here to remove this debris, which is just all across this parish here. Here in Jefferson Parish, Jake, one woman died as a result of this tornado that ripped through the community. And You can see the strength of this storm, what it did to this family's home, ripping off the walls and the ceilings, and what from residents tell me here, The tornado happened in a matter of seconds, about 20 to 30 seconds. In fact, the man that lives in this home right here, his name is Trent Terrio. He tells me that he rode out the tornado inside his closet with his dog. He said he only had a matter of seconds to take cover. And from what he tells me, he thought it was all going to be over for him. The man, he says, survived COVID, being hospitalized by COVID, being hospitalized by pneumonia, and now counts himself a tornado survivor.
8: So we got in here. And all of a sudden, maybe about a minute or so after that, just a strong gust of wind come through the front door, front of the house. The tornado came through the front, and we in here locked up in here, me and the dog. And all of a sudden, everything just blew up like a bomb. How, how, how long? It blew up like a bomb. blew up like a bomb About 20 seconds, but it seemed longer than that.
10: Part of what really caught residents here off guard is that there's not this, you know, it's this large of a tornado outbreak is just really rare for this type of year. They were getting the severe weather alerts, but they never thought they were going to take a direct hit. Jake, Nick, what kind of help do people there need? Well, in the short term, they need their power back on. You know, the local power company is giving alerts to some of these residents, telling them that their power is back on. It clearly is not. This area where we're in, it's next to a high school, which you can see was heavily damaged. So they're a priority here yeah. to get back up and running. But some residents we've spoken to in neighboring uh, Gretna, they say they've been told it could take up to two to three weeks. Meanwhile, it's not lost on them, Jake, that this happened just before Christmas. In fact, I spoke to a seven-year-old who told me that he was worried Santa wasn't going to be able to find him to give him his gifts because his uh, home was damaged. Uh, one of the local officials here is pleading for people to donate toys for the kids in this community. Jake.
1: All right, Nick Valencia in Marrero, Louisiana. Thank you so much. Coming up next, a Republican lawmaker pushing the U.S. government to make good on a promise to nearly 80,000 people who help save American lives. Stay with us. In our world lead, it is a test of the U.S. government's commitment to keep its promises. That is at the heart of the Afghanistan Adjustment Act. The bipartisan legislation is aimed at offering support in a path to permanent residence for more than 80,000 Afghans who arrived in the U.S. after being forced to flee as American forces left in 2021 and to offer help for the thousands still there in Afghanistan, the ones left behind. Many of these Afghans risked it all to help the U.S. And now U.S. lawmakers are being pushed to help them, but facing some resistance. Here to discuss is Republican Congressman Peter Meyer of Michigan. He went to Afghanistan in late August 21 as the chaotic withdrawal was underway and is also a veteran who um, served in Iraq. And then you were with an NGO in Afghanistan, if memory serves. Correct. Um, so this legislation has bipartisan support in the House and the Senate. But I'm not sure if it's going to pass. What's going on?
11: No, that that is the crux. I mean, I think that, frankly, will will be decided tonight whether or not this is offered as either a floor amendment to the Omnibus or in the original... The big spending bill. Yes, that we are planning to vote on that will get us uh, the budget through the rest of the year. Uh, So this is what we're trying to put additional pressure on. This This is a piece of legislation we've been working on for over a year. There has been a very strong public effort uh, among the veterans community and all those who fought hard... To get the Afghans that we had left behind to get them to safety, both through the gates at Hamid Karzai International Airport last August and also in the flights that have occurred since then, and behind the scenes. So we have been working on this draft text for, like I said, over a year. It's something that has gone through multiple iterations with multiple stakeholders. And frankly, you know, time is running out to get this on our books to make sure that we are keeping the promise that we made to the Afghans who served alongside U.S. forces and all those who participated in our mission.
1: So, uh, And um, and so many of them risked their lives, even sacrificed their lives Mm -hmm. working for the American people in Afghanistan. My understanding is that the chief blockade is from Senator Chuck Grassley, the Republican from Iowa, who's the ranking Republican on the Senate Judiciary Committee. He keeps raising security concerns, suggesting that the vetting process is being eased and that dangerous people potentially will be let... Into the United States is that right? Is he is he the chief blocker of this? And how do you respond to his concerns?
11: Well, I think there are legitimate concerns on the vetting and on the security side. Those have been raised in the negotiations we've had, and we have worked to address and to strengthen them. But the important thing to remember is that if there is a senator who is concerned on the safety and security side. This is an additional vetting step. This is a way of taking the folks who are already here, who had gone through vetting, and we'd seen some issues with that in some uh, Office of the Inspector General reports on the Department of Homeland Security side. But this allows us to have another bite at that apple to make sure that the folks who are here, that we are putting them through the rigorous checks and having an additional layer in case there was any issues the first time around. So while I am sympathetic to those concerns, this bill actually addresses those. If that is the issue that somebody has, this is the solution to it. And I don't want to get down the path of individual senators, um, but it is important that we have buy-in. We have five co-sponsors on the Senate side. uh, Sorry, Republican co-sponsors on the Senate side. Five Republican or Democratic co-sponsors on the Senate side. Uh, There are multiple bipartisan co-sponsors in the House. This is something that's gone through the process, and we just need to get it done.
1: And you're about to leave office. This is an important priority uh, as you head back to Michigan.
11: 100% what you have on that back screen it was keeping our promise it's honoring the promises that were made this is not some gift this is not some freebie uh, this is the us legitimately fulfilling what the commitments that we had already made to the afghans who have worked alongside us and that is a commitment that i made a promise to work on as a member of congress and before my term ends on january 3rd is something i want to continue to do everything we can to get across the finish line.
1: And you and you know some of these individuals. You know mm-hmm. some of these translators and, and who served other roles, both mm-hmm. in Iraq and Afghanistan.
11: Absolutely. Well, in, Af- in Afghanistan, there were my friends, there were my colleagues. I mean, these were folks during the withdrawal period. Uh, you know, I would wake up—well, a lot of us were, frankly, living on cobble time. I mean, we were waking up in the morning to the messages, trying to coordinate, getting folks through the gate. Uh, there were individuals uh, that I knew personally that when— uh, Seth Moulton and I went to Kabul, we were able to hand off to the cell to get rescued so they could come across because of the chaos at those checkpoints. And that's another thing to remember with the Afghan Adjustment Act. I mean, American soldiers risked their lives. Our sailors, airmen, Marines, they sacrificed their lives to help rescue these Afghans. And now in the absence of an Adjustment Act, we're on the pathway to be deporting the people that Americans risked and
1: sacrificed their that's lives Absolutely. And St. Peter... Meyer, don't be a stranger. Please come back. It's always good to have you on the show. Thank you. Next, the large scale Lego style construction project that could be a blueprint to solving one of the most expensive problems in the United States, plus beyond the border. CNN on the ground in Mexico, hear what migrants are saying about their determination to get into the United States. Moments ago, Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger gave his final floor speech as a member of Congress, and he reflected on his service as just one of the two Republicans on the House Select Committee looking into January 6th. Take a listen.
12: Had I known that standing up for truth would cost me my job, friendships, and even my personal security, I would, without hesitation, do it all over again. I can rest easy at night knowing that I fulfilled my oath to the office. I know many in this institution cannot do the same.
1: Kinzinger and Congresswoman Liz Cheney will be part of the January 6th committee's final public meeting on Monday. In our mon- money lead, a new analysis ranks Miami, Los Angeles, and New York as the least affordable cities in the United States, according to data from, Real- from Realty Hop. The average homeowners in these places are paying upwards of 80% of their annual income, up to 80% on housing. For so many Americans, that's just not sustainable. CNN's David Culver found one creative solution in California where a company is literally piecing together affordable alternatives. So this is where the floors of the volumes themselves get built. Keeping up with
12: Larry Pace. Don't touch it is not easy. Excuse me, fellas. He moves through the flora factory OS. What are you all doing? With a sense of urgency. All right, come up. Located just outside San Francisco, this space was first designed to build U.S. Navy submarines. This place was built for World War II. Eight decades later, it's now transformed to fight a worsening crisis on the American home front.
11: This is a war we're in. We're in a war to to combat the the affordability and the housing crisis.
12: Factory OS puts home building onto an assembly line and out the door within two weeks. These modular units, when combined, create entire apartment buildings. Think sophisticated Legos. Production starts with a high-tech expedited design process. You're looking at the plans for Beacon Landing, an 89-unit affordable housing complex to be built just south of downtown L.A insulation and drywall flooring and even fixtures all prefabricated right here in the factory i mean does it all work (laughs) i would like to think so
13: to look down this line and see what we're doing for the community is
12: is mind-blowing the need also overwhelming in southern california look past the glamour of los angeles's hollywood hills the tents speak to desperation According to 2019 figures, the state needed an estimated million more homes just to meet housing demand. Nationally, the home shortage jumped to roughly 3.8 million. That's more than double the number from a decade ago. But it's more than just boosting housing inventory. Inflation, zoning inequalities, also contributing factors as to why people just can't buy homes. To purchase a house in more than 75% of the nation's most populous cities, an average family spends 30% of their income. In cities like Miami, New York, or L.A., it surges to more than 80% of an average family's income. It's forced folks to seek other options, from moving into converted garages and smaller units on someone else's property to expanding a civil rights era approach that helps promote home ownership, particularly among minority groups.
14: It shouldn't have to be that way, where you're going to, you know, have to move so far out of, you know, L.A. Um, to be able to have a home.
12: Ixtela Hernandez's family moved here when she was about four. At one point, they had six people crammed into their one-bedroom apartment. Yes, adios. Thank God we never fell short on rent, her dad says. But as renters for more than 20 years, they constantly worried about a new landlord wanting to sell the property or raise rent. Okay. That is until this year, when the Hernándezes and their neighbors joined a community land trust, or CLT as they're known. A CLT is essentially a nonprofit that buys the land on which a building sits, allowing a community's residents to collectively manage it. Some residents eventually form a co-op and take ownership of their buildings, paying rent for the land.
14: It may not seem like a lot to a lot of folks that have money or are come from money. It's just, you know, we are just as much trying to build that generational wealth.
12: Today, there are at least five community land trusts here in Los Angeles, with more than 200 nationwide and counting. What's important is that we're now owners, her mom says. It was not easy, her dad reminds them. No. About an hour's drive south from the Hernandez home, we watched as the modular units arrived from the Bay Area, hoisted from a truck and placed onto a cement foundation, block by block. That beacon landing design we showed you earlier is quickly coming to life. Affordable housing, coming summer 2023. It's not only the nonprofits trying to help, Factory OS also aiming to ease the housing burden and commute time for its own employees. Just to be able to like, okay, I'm going to wake up, I'm going to take a walk down the street and come to work. You know, I mean, that's, that's awesome. The company planning to convert this vacant lot nearby into employer-assisted housing. But to successfully fight the dire housing crisis nationally, Larry believes it'll take corporations and government mobilizing now.
11: We all need to work on it together and we can reverse this tide. The war is not lost. The war is absolutely not lost.
12: And Jake, one of the solutions that we pointed out there in our reporting that's getting an increasing amount of attention is this idea of employer assisted housing. Apple, Meta. Google. Those are some of the companies that are moving forward with that initiative. But then you've got folks who are first responders, who are nurses, who are teachers. They, too, are getting priced out of their communities. And so you've got local hospitals. You've got local school districts, like here in L.A., that are also considering finding ways to house their staff.
1: Jake? David Culver, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the episodes that go further than ever. What Prince Harry says led to his brother, Prince William, screaming at him. And what Harry and Meghan say pushed them away from the royal family, perhaps for good. Stay with us. In our pop culture lead, much more drama than your average episode of Suits. Britain's royal family feud reached new heights today after the final episodes dropped of the Harry and Meghan Netflix documentary. As CNN royal correspondent Max Foster reports, the series includes Harry's bombshell claims of a screaming match when he told his family that he and Meghan would leave royal life. The
15: palace may have been spared in the first drop of episodes, but this time Harry and Meghan didn't pull any punches.
16: Everything that's happened to us was always going to happen to us, because if you speak truth to power, that's how they respond.
15: In the final episodes of the couple's Netflix docu-series, Harry took aim at his brother.
16: It was terrifying to have my brother um, scream and shout at me and my father say things that just simply weren't true, and, and my grandmother, you know, quietly sit there and, and sort of take it all in. The couple sharing their
15: perspective on the Royal Rift, which, in their words, pushed them out of the fold. It started during their tour of Australia back in 2018, so successful, it created jealousy in the palace, they say.
16: The issue is when someone who's marrying in who should be a supporting a supporting act is then stealing the limelight or is doing the job better than the person who was born to do this, that upsets people. It shifts the balance. The palace wasn't going to protect her. Once that happens, the floodgates open.
7: And I realized
9: that I wasn't just being thrown to the wolves i was being fed to the wolves
15: megan says the stress of the media coverage was too much last year saying she didn't want to live anymore it's like
9: all of this will stop if i'm not here and that was the scariest thing about it is it was such clear thinking
15: But she also suffered physically because of the stress of the worldwide coverage and in British newspapers, including the Daily Mail, which published a letter she wrote to her father.
16: I believe my wife suffered a miscarriage because of what the Mail did. That I watched the whole thing. Now, do we absolutely know that the miscarriage was caused by that? Of course we don't. But bearing in mind the stress that caused the lack of sleep and the timing of the 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 pregnancy, how many weeks in she was, I can say, from what I saw, that miscarriage was created by what they were trying to do to her.
15: The family's response? Well, on Thursday, they showed a united front at a planned engagement, and the Palace said they had no plans to comment on the series. It does feel as though the two sides are very far apart. You can't really see them reconciling at this point. So many confidences broken there. But there's more to come, Jake, because Harry's book is due out in January,
1: promising more revelations. All right, Max Foster, thanks so much. Be sure to tune in, by the way, for a CNN Tonight special, Royal Revelations. Alison Camerata hosts that's tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern only on CNN. Up next here on The Lead, the highly anticipated JFK assassination files, what the US government kept secret for nearly 60 years. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a brand new study on the price of misdiagnosis in this country. A study that hits particularly close to home. How doctors misdiagnosing my daughter's sickness almost cost her her life. Dr. Sanjay Gupta will take a look at what other parents and patients can learn and what doctors need to change. Plus, tick-tock, tick-tock, more governors are banning TikTok tock on governor, t- government devices. Could time be actually running out for the popular social media app? And leading this hour, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says he is expecting a new Russian offensive early in the new year. But Zelensky says Ukraine will not compromise and their goal is still to return to their 1991 borders. This week alone, nearly 400 violent clashes between Russian and Ukrainian forces have occurred in eastern Ukraine, according to top military officers. And a barrage of shelling has left the southern city of Kherson quote, completely disconnected from any power source. We're going to start our coverage with CNN's Will Ripley on Russia's new warning to the U.S. today that there could be quote, unpredictable consequences if the Pentagon gives Ukraine
13: that Patriot
1: missile system.
13: Jake, even before an official White House announcement about Patriot missile defense systems, the Kremlin and the Russian embassy in D.C. very quick to respond. The embassy saying that uh, this could lead to unpredictable consequences here in Ukraine. The Kremlin saying that these would be a legitimate target for them if they could actually find them and hit them. Uh, the constant Russian bombardment on Ukraine's civilian infrastructure is the latest reason for Ukrainian officials to really intensify their calls for Patriot missile defense, which would truly be a game changer, potentially could uh, stop many of these Russian attacks, particularly from bombers that carry missiles that Ukraine currently doesn't have the capacity to shoot down. There were actually air raid sirens going off in Kyiv the other day, not because there were incoming missiles, but just because Russian bombers were spotted near Ukraine that potentially carry the kind of missiles that Ukraine currently cannot defend against. The Patriot would change that. But but getting there, uh, getting to that next stage of the conflict where Patriots would be deployed, which is what the Ukrainian defense minister told me he was confident would happen when I interviewed him last weekend, will require months of training because these are highly complex systems that require a large number of people when you're talking about a battalion of Patriot Missile Defense batteries, even though uh, as few as three people can actually operate each individual truck uh, you know, when you see it fire. uh, It it, it requires a a, a tremendous amount of work, which is why uh, when these defense systems have been deployed for U.S. allies, often it's American personnel who are operating them. That is simply not possible here in Ukraine. The Ukrainians are going to have to learn how to use this system autonomously. There is uh, intensified fighting on the front line Uh, in the east in Donetsk with Ukrainian forces pummeling Russian-held Donetsk, the worst attack the Russians claim since 2014, although CNN can't independently verify a lot of the videos and the claims that are coming out of Donetsk, but certainly the Russians are claiming that civilian targets are being hit there. Civilian targets are certainly being hit down in uh, southern Ukraine in Kherson, where wave after wave of Russian shelling has uh, destroyed much of an administrative building as well as killing people uh, and and ha- causing basically that entire city to be cut off from the power grid entirely. It is just uh, evidence that even though the winter, uh, it, the dead of winter is here, essentially, even though the official start of winter is still days away, uh, here in Ukraine, they're already dealing with really horrific conditions for soldiers on the front lines and for the millions of people around this country who are forced to live for hours or even days on end in the dark and the cold. Jake.
2: All right,
1: Will Ripley, thanks so much. I want to turn now to CNN's Oren Lieberman. And Oren, you just heard Will Ripley report that Ukrainians are saying they desperately need this missile defense system. What's the Pentagon saying today?
17: The Pentagon hasn't yet confirmed the story that CNN broke, that the administration was getting ready to send the Patriot air defense system over to Ukraine. But the Pentagon did respond to Russia's comments on unpredictable consequences and warning that this would drag the U.S. closer into a conflict uh, with Russia. And the Pentagon blatantly said that it's not Russia's place, the starter of this war, to dictate what the U.S. will and will not send. Here's Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder.
2: We're not going to allow comments from Russia to dictate Uh, the security assistance that we provide to Ukraine.
17: A blunt statement there that the U.S. would continue doing what it thinks is best, not only in its interest, but also in the interests of Ukraine. Jake, it's worth pointing out that the purpose of the Patriot, to shoot down missiles, drones, rockets, and attacks from Ukraine, is what other U.S. systems have already done to this point.
1: Yeah, it's a defensive system. Uh, The U.S. announced today uh, that it's going to expand the training of Ukrainian armed forces. What does this training involve And could this result in even more U.S. troops being deployed nearby in Europe? So
17: as of right now, that's not the plan, because the 7th Army Training Command that will carry out this training is already there. Depending on plans on expanding Ukrainian training to about 500 soldiers per month, not on the smaller groups of soldiers on individual systems that we've seen since the beginning of this war, but on larger training, groups of soldiers, platoons, squads, up to the battalion level, essentially how to work together, how to fight together, to achieve a decisive outcome on the battlefield. That's the goal here, combined arms maneuver, and making sure more of Ukraine's military is able to carry out these larger maneuvers. The Pentagon pointed out this is the sort of work they did with the Ukrainians before the invasion, ever since the the 2014 invasion of Crimea, and now they'll be getting back to that.
1: Jake? All right, Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon, thanks so much. I'd like to bring in Democratic Congressman Seth Moulton, who just returned from a trip to Ukraine where he met with Ukrainian officials in Kyiv and visited U.S. troops in nearby Poland as part of a congressional delegation. Congressman, thanks for joining us. So House members received a briefing today from Secretary of State Blinken and Secretary of Defense Austin. I know the briefing was classified, but is there anything you can share with us, any major takeaways? Well,
18: I'll just tell you that the war is going well for Ukraine. And I was amazed when I went to Kyiv at how much it looked like it did a year ago. I was there just before the invasion in December of 2021. I came back warning that I thought an all out Russian assault was likely, even though that was not the consensus opinion at the time. But Kyiv today looks much the same. It's incredible how resilient the Ukrainian people are. They're going to fight through this winter. Uh, They're going to continue fighting Russia. And with our assistance, they're going to win this war.
1: When you met with Ukrainian officials in Kyiv, what did they tell you they need from the U.S. and from NATO uh, allies other than the Patriot missile defense system? Well, they made
18: the point that their needs have changed over time. If you remember when the war kicked off, they wanted Stinger missiles because they were so concerned about Russian fighter jets and bombers in the skies. We got them those and they were essential in the early part of the conflict. But then they wanted advanced artillery systems to start taking territory back from, uh, from the Russians. Now they need Patriot missile defense uh, to protect against this onslaught against their energy infrastructure. But I suspect in the future they're going to need more offensive systems. They may be requesting things like tanks and armored personnel carriers to go against the, West, uh, the Russian defenses in the eastern part of the country. The Russians are digging in right now and, and Ukraine needs to take that territory
1: back. What do you make of the Kremlin warning that if the U.S. does give this Patriot missile system to Ukraine, uh, it could drag U.S. soldiers into ground combat in Ukraine. Um, is, is there any truth to that?
18: No, no, it's, it's ridiculous. And, and part of their warning was that if we give them Patriot missile batteries, uh, that makes them legitimate uh, targets for attack. Well, no kidding. I mean, uh, of course, the Russians would try to take out Patriot vessel batteries. So it's just such a such a non-threat. I and mean, I think one of the lessons that we all have to learn here is that Putin is a dangerous person. He's a dangerous autocratic leader, but a lot he's a lot of bluster. He's a lot of bluster and he will back down. Remember his terrible threats uh, if more countries join NATO. Two countries did and nothing happened his terrible threats if, if America provided any support to Ukraine whatsoever. Instead, he's now losing this war. So we've gotta not be cowed by Putin. That was a clear message that I took home from the American ambassador uh, in Ukraine, who spent over a decade dealing with Putin in that part of the world. She said, let's not be afraid of this guy. Let's make sure we win the
1: war. Russia's targeting, as you know, the Ukrainian energy infrastructure resulting in massive power outages across the country and Ukrainians being freezing cold in the winter uh, shelling in Herson today completely disconnected the entire city from power supplies it's just beginning obviously it's it's just the early december how concerned are you how worried are you about the ukrainian people being able to survive uh, a cold winter
18: Well, well listen first of all let me just say that i worry about the ukrainian people every single day in this horrific war. This horrific war started by one person, a war that didn't need to happen, and is killing tens of thousands of Ukrainians, and frankly, tens of thousands of Russian boys, too. So this whole war makes me worried about Ukrainians. But I actually think they're going to be pretty tough through this winter. Will Russia's assault on energy infrastructure kill Ukrainians in their homes because they freeze to death? Yes, that will happen. But I think that we have often underestimated just how resilient the Ukrainian people are. And Putin's idea uh, that he's going to bring them begging to the negotiating table just because he makes them cold. Now, that just shows he doesn't know the Ukrainian
1: people. So, so the U.S. Uh, issued a new round of sanctions today targeting more than 20 Russian governors, a wealthy Russian oligarch. Do you think the Biden administration is doing enough on the sanction front?
18: I mean, I think their work has been pretty, pretty incredible on the sanctions front. Uh, I mean, let's not forget when this war started, we were concerned about whether Germany would be even with us in the war effort because they're so dependent on Russian gas. Instead, Secretary Blinken and the Biden administration have assembled the most impressive allied coalition since World War II. So I think they're doing, uh, they're doing a great job on the, on the diplomatic front. And frankly, they're doing a good job the, on the military front as well. Um, they're doing a remarkable job of walking the line between not making this into a U.S. versus Russia direct foe-on-foe conflict, uh, not dragging US troops in, while giving the Ukrainians everything they need. I think the one criticism that you'll hear on a bipartisan basis from uh, from the uh, from Congress about the administration is just that they need to move more quickly. I mean, they've, it sounds like, according to your reporting, they've decided to send Patriot missiles to Ukraine. Well, let's not wait another day. Yeah. We saw a lot of Russian attacks just the last few days. Let's get them those missile systems now.
1: All right, Congressman Seth Moulton of Massachusetts. Thank you so much, sir. Good to see you again. While thousands of migrants cross into the United States, thousands of others are waiting just across the border in Mexico. CNN hears some of their stories next. Then a mother's final phone call to her son just moments before he was shot and killed.
6: And, but we, I did get a chance to pray with him. And then he said, Mom, I love you.
1: We're going to talk to the family of Deshaun Perry, one of the three UVA football players gunned down by a classmate. Stay with us. Topping our national lead, thousands of migrants are at the U.S. Mexico border right now, waiting to get into the United States. By next week, some border officials are expecting numbers to double as time runs out on that Trump era pandemic policy known as Title 42, which made it easier for U.S. border officials to send asylum seekers. Back to Mexico. Now local and federal authorities on the U.S. side of the border are scrambling. CNN's, CNN's Ed Lavandera talked to migrants on the Mexican side of the border, most of them just hoping for a shot at a better life. For nearly
19: three months, Jason Birguez and his wife Zulema have waited for this moment, taking the final steps across the Rio Grande into the United States. Did you think? Reaching this point was going to be so emotional. He says they never thought the journey from Venezuela would be so painful. I tell her I can see the emotion in her face and the sense of relief that she's entering the United States with her two sons. With that, they step across the river. The family says they could not wait any longer to see what might happen with the lifting of the Title 42 public health rule which has kept 2.5 million migrants from requesting asylum in the United States. Jason and Zulema are now part of the current surge of migrants entering El Paso. Officials say about 2,500 people per day are crossing. The migrants spend the night in a long orderly line in the shadow of the barbed wire covered border wall. Here they wait to be called in by border patrol agents. They are then escorted to a processing facility to find out if they'll be deported Or allowed to stay in the US as their immigration case moves through the courts. It's a band-aid to really a bigger problem. El Paso's mayor says if Title 42 is lifted next week, the number of migrants crossing into the city could jump to 5,000 per day. Already, shelters are out of space, and immigration processing facilities are over capacity. Despite this, the mayor says he doesn't see a need to declare the situation a state of emergency.
15: I can tell you the only thing that I am 100% sure today, that we'll be prepared on December 21st, that if it is left, that the community in the city of El Paso
18: will be prepared.
19: At the river, hundreds are still waiting to get into the US and the lines show no signs of slowing down. Before they crossed, Jason and Zulema said they will wait in the frigid cold as long as it takes to get past the wall. I asked them what they will think <laughs> if that
6: happens.
19: We're going to thank God and it's going to be a new life for us. And Jake, a lot of the people that have been uh, here in El Paso processed out there waiting on the streets because the shelters are so filled and essentially what they're doing is trying to buy some time here. Many of them having to be here overnight and they're near bus stations. Uh, these are the, the the bus stations, and there are a number of them around downtown El Paso, uh, where they are then moving on to other locations. But what we did discover on the other side today, Jake, is that not everyone is coming across. There are many people who are still waiting in and out, deciding not to
1: cross, waiting to see what happens with Title 42 next week before they decide to cross into the U.S. Jake. All right, Ed Lavender at the border in El Paso. Thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN's chief White House correspondent, Phil Manningly. Phil, what exactly is the Biden administration's plan to handle? This surge. It's a humanitarian crisis. Yeah, Jake, and White House officials are keenly aware of the
20: dynamics currently at play, and they do point to a very broad outline of what is planned on December 21st. Really, a six point plan laid out by the Department of Homeland Security it includes surging resources, increasing processing efficiency, imposing consequences for unlawful entry, bolstering nonprofit capacity, targeting smugglers, and working with international partners. But, Jake, you know as well as anybody. Those six pillars are hardly the type of detail that will be required in the next couple of weeks. What I'm told is behind the scenes, White House officials and their DHS counterparts have been working intensively for several weeks leading up to this moment. And at some point next week, they will release a series of details about the types of personnel surges, infrastructure surges that are very much in the works at this moment, specific numbers as well. But there are also policy changes that administration officials have been going back and forth over over the course of the last couple of weeks, some of which many of the administration's Democratic allies would not appreciate. However, red they're trying to do right now, as one official told me, it's a no-win situation. We're trying to work with the tools we have, Jake.
1: And Phil, a local Democratic official from a Texas border town, uh, Judge Richard C- Cortez, told CNN this morning that President Biden needs to, quote, provide leadership and needs to come down to the border himself to see this humanitarian crisis with his own eyes. Why hasn't the president visited the border yet? Yeah, Jake, in large part, it's because they White House
20: officials believe it would become a political circus. And as one official told me, that's exactly what uh, the Republicans would want at this point in time. Obviously, Kamala Harris, the vice president, went down last year, but there are no plans at this moment for the president to go down. They believe their DHS secretary, those officials uh, that work on the border are the best people to have down there, not the president himself.
1: All right. Phil Mattingly at the White House. Thanks so much. Coming up, how a doctor's misdiagnosis almost cost my daughter her life, what you and other parents need to know to protect your children, and a new study showing just how prevalent misdiagnosis is in the United States. Stay with us. In our health lead, a brand new study released this afternoon shows that an estimated 7.5 million people, 7.5 million, are misdiagnosed every year, at emergency rooms across the United States. I, unfortunately, know all too well about the cost of misdiagnosis. About a year ago, my then 14-year-old daughter, Alice, almost died as a result. And this is not a story I would normally share with a mass audience, but Alice's experience is one that Alice believes can help others, because her ordeal was entirely preventable. Last November 2021, Alice became sick with appendicitis. But the doctors misdiagnosed what she had because her symptoms were not completely standard ones for appendicitis. Ultimately, we learned that while they were treating her for a viral infection, infection instead, her appendix had actually perforated and toxic fluid was seeping out and poisoning her internal organs. Her body started going into what's called hypovolemic shock meaning her heart was unable to pump enough blood to all of her organs, which causes organ failure. And as my family learned the hard way, this specific appendicitis misdiagnosis, it's really not all that uncommon. Appendicitis does not always present a standard way, which means that this specific misdiagnosis happens too often and sometimes to far more tragic results. Alice has recovered, thankfully. She is now stronger and fitter than ever. But this was obviously a horrific trauma, physical and otherwise. Alice and my wife, Jennifer, are now trying to change how doctors rule out appendicitis. We asked CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, to take a look at what Alice went through and how this can be prevented for anyone else.
21: I was so tired. I would sleep through the whole day, and my stomach was hurt so bad. I've never been in that amount of extreme pain before. That was the scariest thing I've ever seen, because it was just,
14: the life was just leaving her. And I just thought, this is, what is wrong? Why is her skin so green, and why are her hands and feet freezing?
22: I mean, you you really thought that, that Alice might die?
14: I absolutely don't like to think that she could have died, but... A hundred percent, I was starting to think. I'm gonna
21: this. Okay, that's
22: it. Jennifer and my colleague Jake Tapper are 15-year-old Alice's parents. They all wanted to share their story as a cautionary tale and to shed light on how something so common, so treatable, could go so terribly wrong.
21: I started throwing up on a Saturday morning, and I got really sick. I was just not getting better, so my parents took me to go into the hospital.
22: Most likely diagnosis at the time stomach pains, possible food poisoning, gastroenteritis. Jennifer was particularly worried about appendicitis.
14: I said, this is on Monday, and I said, why don't you just give her a sonogram? Um, you know, she has so much going on down there. She's in so much pain. Let's just see what it is, because we don't know. And they looked at me, and, she, and the doctor said, that data's not needed.
1: That data's not needed. We
14: don't need that data.
1: Data,
22: evidence. And one more critical ingredient, judgment. It's what doctors use to try and make decisions. For example, pain in the right lower belly is considered one of the most common symptoms of appendicitis. And yet, less than half of all people with appendicitis have the classic pattern. Where were you experiencing the pain?
21: I had pain all over my abdomen instead of just um, my right quadrant. The way that they ruled out appendicitis was by jump test. I was asked to... Um, jump. And I was able to maybe get one inch off the ground. And just that ruled out appendicitis for all the doctors. And that's when they just declared it was a viral infection.
4: But being aware of biases is very important. Dr.
22: Prashant Mahajan heads the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Department at the University of Michigan. He says misdiagnosis can occur in part because of diagnostic momentum.
4: You anchor yourself on that particular diagnosis. And it is possible in some instances that it is taking you away from the condition that the patient has.
22: It was in part that diagnostic momentum that led to the doctors missing the early signs of appendicitis in Alice. Every year, roughly 25,000 children develop appendicitis. And according to this study published in 2020 by Dr. Mahajan, roughly 5% of the time, that's a 1,000 times a year, the story mirrors the story of what happened to Alice Tapper next.
1: We went into the hospital, and we just assumed the doctors knew what they were talking about. They kind of backed into a diagnosis of a viral infection. And Jen and I would say, are you sure it's not appendicitis because her pediatrician thinks it might be? Is there some reason we can't give her antibiotics? Is there some reason we can't get an x-ray or a scan?
14: We see the child every day. So I knew her skin coloring was different. I knew her belly was distended, even though she's a smaller-framed, child. Those are the things we kept saying.
22: In fact, more than three excruciating days passed in the hospital without much more than pain relievers before the Tapper family was finally able to
1: get some answers. I'm a journalist, so I was able to get the number of the administrator, figure it out, and they and they took the call and they took action. But most people wouldn't have been able to do that. We recognized we have this privilege.
21: We got an x-ray and it showed that I had Something going on in my appendix. So after we got a sonogram, they were like, we need to rush you into surgery after this.
22: But by then, Alice had worsened, dramatically. The reason she had suffered such widespread pain was because her appendix had already ruptured, leading to severe infection and sepsis. An appendectomy is one of the most common pediatric operations performed. Typically, it lasts around an hour, and the recovery takes a few weeks. In Alice's case, however, the operation couldn't even be done because her abdominal cavity was now filled with infected fluid.
21: I had to get two liposcopic drains at first, and then after they um, discharged me and sent me home, I went back to the hospital because I still wasn't feeling better, and they had to put another liposcopic drain in me. I ended up getting my appendix out 12 weeks later in March.
22: What was your life like during those 12 weeks.
21: I had lost so much weight from being hospitalized that I was just struggling to eat and able to function. I had trouble going to school. I would get so tired and make my mom pick me up early.
22: Months of her life lost. So much of that entirely preventable. You know, I think a lot of people are going to watch this and and frankly be, be worried. Is there a lesson here, do you
14: think? This isn't a time to be polite when you're in the hospital. You must defend your child and your Listening to parents is probably the most important thing doctors and hospitals
1: can do. This could have happened to any child at any hospital in the United States because doctors are not sufficiently aware of how often it is that appendicitis does not present in a standard way.
22: It's been nine months since Alice Tapper finally got her appendectomy. And after a particularly dark time, she is once again allowing herself to start dreaming about the future. But now, she has a new mission as well.
21: I want to row in college and maybe study zoology. I just love how my life is turning out. I think that it was a really, I wish it never happened to me, obviously, but I think it was a really important learning experience for me. I want other kids to know that they need to advocate for themselves.
1: So Sanjay, uh, you're not only a dad, you're a doctor who works at a major hospital. I can tell you firsthand how frustrating this was for me and Jennifer. So as a parent, when you know something is wrong with your kid, how can you really get your doctor's attention if you feel they're not listening and not taking sufficiently seriously what you're telling them?
22: Yeah. Well, first, Jake, I just, I want to say that I'm, I'm sorry. Just I saw all that you, all that Alice and all of you, you went through and just as a fellow human i just want to say i'm sorry that i read those medical records there was hundreds of pages it was hard to believe what i was you know reading that that sort of nightmare scenario that was unfolding and i and i just wanted to say I'm so sorry you guys went through that look you know i learned a lot uh, while looking into this jake i mean i think one of the things jennifer said near the end really being the advocate, understanding that parents know their children better than anyone, and really focusing on what tends to be one of the most common reasons for misdiagnosis, which is if symptoms are atypical at all. It tends to throw off, uh, you know, maybe the, the uh, obvious signs, in this case, of appendicitis. There's a new study that came out today showing there's 130 million ER visits every year, and about 5 to 6% of the time, there's a misdiagnosis. of the time it can lead to adverse side effects and about 0.3% of the time they can be very serious side effects, even death. So that does happen. But I think it's this, this eight, you know, so much of medicine is pattern recognition. When there's an atypical symptom, such as what Alice was experiencing, it really threw off that diagnostic momentum. I do think, I will say this, Jake, one of the great privileges of being a journalist is that we do get to shed light on things like this. And I blend this, this world between medicine and media. Sometimes stories like this can make an impression on the medical establishment, which is what I hope happens here. And, you know, I, I also have to say just um, Alice is delightful, I'm a father of three teenage girls, as you know, and she's just delightful. She also wrote an op-ed, uh, which is incredible. Um, everyone should read this op-ed. But I was curious, like, how would, you, how would you sort of, what would you say her number one piece of advice is, Alice?
1: Um, so the op-ed's going to post on CNN.com, and I'll tweet it out uh, at, the, at the commercial break. I, I think the thing that stunned us was um, the fact that the doctors discounted appendicitis based on the kind of tests that they had available in the year 1300, right? I mean, they just poked her abdomen and then poked the other side. Well, she's pain, feeling pain everywhere. Therefore, it can't be appendicitis. Oh, she's able to jump an inch off the ground. Therefore, it can't be appendicitis. Right. That, that's not enough. And we know from Dr. Mahajan's research, anywhere from 5% to, to, I think, 14 or 15% of the time, appendicitis does not present in this standard way. So the, I think Alice's main message is, Doctors, parents, kids um, know that appendicitis does not always present in a standard way, uh, and doctors uh, update your standard of care uh, so, yeah. that, so that you're not just uh, backing into a diagnosis.
22: I can tell you, I've already gotten calls because people knew we were working on the story from uh, heads of big children's hospitals around the country talking about whether or not the sort of diagnostic criteria for appendicitis does need to be uh, updated. An ultrasound is a fairly easy thing to do. Um, Again, I mean, there there was so many different parts to to Alice's story. the bottom line is I'm glad she's doing well. Hopefully, this will lead to some change so this story doesn't have to get repeated.
1: And that's the reason we went public. It's not about finger pointing. It's, it's about change. There needs to be change. Sanjay, thank you so much for taking this um, so seriously and for helping me to share uh, Alice's story. I really, all the tappers, we really appreciate it.
22: It, it was my honor, seriously. And give, give the little delightful Alice a big hug for me. She's Uncle Sanjay.
1: And just everyone out there, she's doing great. She's the healthiest, fittest one yeah. in the family. She's doing awesome. Thanks so much, Sanjay. <laughs> Coming up, new TikTok bans today with lawmakers promising further action against the popular app. I'm going to talk to one significant government official who's pushing to get rid of TikTok altogether. That's next. Topping our tech lead, last night the U.S. Senate passed a bill that would ban TikTok on U.S. government devices. But House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says there's no guarantee the House will take that legislation up. This comes as a slew of lawmakers at the state and federal level are pushing to ban the hugely popular app, worried that TikTok's user data could very well end up in the hands of the Chinese government. Let's bring in the top Republican commissioner at the Federal Communications Commission, uh, Brendan Karf. So, Commissioner, let me just start. I recently deleted TikTok, okay? I had <laughs> it, it's a super fun app, but I had it, but enough national security experts said, get rid of it, the Chinese government. There's no evidence that they have access to the data, but it's China, so they could get it anytime they want. So I deleted it. Do I need to get a new
23: phone? It's a good question. This is an immensely popular app. We've got millions and millions of Americans on it. Over two-thirds of teens are on TikTok, and they look at it and they say, what's the big deal? It's a Fun platform for sharing videos and crazy dance moves. But the reality is that's just the sheep's clothing. Underneath of it, it operates as a sophisticated surveillance tool. It's pulling everything from search and browsing history, keystroke patterns, potentially biometrics, including face prints and voice prints. And for years we were told, don't worry, none of this is stored in China. But there was some internal communication from TikTok leaked over the summer that showed, quote, everything is seen back in China. So it's a real concern. And you're right. You know, there there may be some steps you need to take. Like in terms of including getting a new phone potentially yeah. once the app is on your phone it can start to pull a lot of information off of your phone and so it it is a concern
1: um so some republicans tell cnn that the senate bill doesn't go far enough it just uh, it bans the app from government devices Uh, they're calling for an all-out ban of the device anywhere for any american in the united states democratic senator mark warner the chairman of the senate intelligence committee he does not agree with that um Marco Rubio, who is the ranking Republican on Senate intelligence, he he does. He's calling for a total ban. What's your position?
23: You know, the Senate bill yesterday was a really important step forward. But you're right. We've got to keep going. And really, it's Democrats that have led the way on this. You noted Democrat Senator Mark Warner, chair of Senate Intel Committee. He has said that TikTok is an enormous threat in his view. And he has said that parents should be very concerned. Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, has said that parents should be concern. And FBI Director Chris Ray has said the FBI has concerns, and they're all right. We focus on national security, but there's really an area here for parents. It's not just the data flowing back to Beijing. The algorithm is distributing content to young kids. A report just came out yesterday that New York Times covered that said within 30 minutes of a 13-year-old going on TikTok, they are fed content about eating disorders, about uh, self-harm, suicide. Encouraging so, those actions, encouraging self-harm, encouraging eating disorders. That's what the, the, the information is showing. There was a study from the Wall Street Journal earlier that kids are being fed, in some cases, content about Tourette syndrome that are developing ticks. So it's a real challenge. And the reveal here is that the parent company of TikTok, ByteDance, doesn't show that content to kids in China. There's a version of the app called Doyon there, and there they demonstrate educational material, museum exhibits, science experiments. That's the content that kids there are being shown. Kids here are being shown things like the Blackout Challenge, which encourages kids to strangulate themselves. In fact, we had 15 kids die from doing the Blackout Challenge under 12 years old in this country. So there's a big national security concern, but parents really need to be worried as well.
1: So CNN uh, was uh, the first to report on a letter that you sent to the Justice Department earlier this month asking its antitrust regulators to look at Google and Apple's handling of TikTok. Have you gotten a response from DOJ? I've
23: done two things. I wrote a letter directly to Apple and Google, and I thought that they should remove TikTok from the App Store based not just on the national security threat, but their terms of service. When an application is nefariously sending data back to Beijing, as now has been demonstrated to be the case with TikTok, Uh, Apple and Google historically kicked them out of the App Store for that. They didn't do that here. So then I wrote a letter to DOJ, as you mentioned, because Apple and Google are facing a lot of antitrust scrutiny. And they defend those cases by saying you need us to be gatekeepers in the app world because we engage in trust, safety and privacy goals. And those are legit defenses to antitrust. And what I said is if you look at TikTok and other conduct that they make with the App Store, it's clear that that claim is pretext and therefore shouldn't operate as a shield To antitrust claims against Apple and
1: Google. Well, okay, this has been absolutely horrifying. Uh, Commissioner Brendan Carr, thank you so much, and thanks for being here today. A call for action today from the grieving parents of a college football player who was gunned down what they're asking his fellow football community to do. Stay stay with us. More than a month since the killings of four Idaho college students, police in Moscow, Idaho, say they are sorting through 22,000 white Hyundai Elantra sedan, such as the car, seen near the student's home the night of the slayings. CNN's Veronica Miracle has been following this story since November. Veronica, we're starting to hear growing frustration from the families about a lack of communication from the authorities.
9: Well, the Gonsalves family attorney says that the family and several leaders in the city of Moscow met on Monday, and the family wanted to express their deep frustration and concern with how this investigation has been handled. They brought five pages of questions, and their main question, though, that they wanted answered was why more information hasn't been released. They say many of those questions went unanswered, including that main question, and police apparently told them, just like they've been telling us throughout this investigation, that they're keeping the information close because they're trying to protect the integrity of the investigation. Of course, the family through the family attorney saying they are dissatisfied with that. Here's what the family attorney had to say.
18: We are pro-police. We are pro-investigation. We are supportive of everyone and everything that everybody has done on this case. But and that that we can still be that way and still hold people accountable for the jobs that they have to do.
9: And I I did speak to police this morning, and they told me that they have been trying to reach out and speak to Gonzalves family through the family attorney. Um, so I think the big picture here, Jake, is that you have a grieving family who's extremely frustrated and a police department that says they are trying to protect the integrity of this investigation, and this is how it's playing out.
1: Jake. Veronica Miracle, thank you so much for staying on top of this story. Also internationally today, the parents of Deshaun Perry, one of the three UVA football players who was shot and killed last month, allegedly by a fellow Student and teammate are speaking out. As CNN's Layla Santiago reports, they are calling on college athletes and those with social media platforms to advocate for mental health awareness as well as gun laws.
6: He was supposed to be home last Wednesday. He was supposed to come home.
5: It's one of the toughest parts, knowing they won't have their son, Deshaun Perry, home for the holidays.
6: This plague has affected my household.
5: Perry's parents are demanding action against gun violence after their son, a UVA football player, number 41, was shot last month by a fellow student as they returned from a class trip. He was one of three killed, two others injured. His mother had just talked to him over the phone. I did get a chance to pray with him. And then he said, Mom, I love you. What'd you pray for?
6: I pray for kindness and understanding and safety.
5: The family still praying for understanding.
6: Getting ready to graduate. Then all of a sudden you're
14: there viewing his body. Then the next day you're packing up his apartment. And then Saturday you're flying him back home. And then that, after Thanksgiving you're having a funeral
6: for him.
5: Tough to make sense of the loss of their son, who loved ones described as the friend who always made you smile, the teammate who worked hard.
6: The why is what I want, but I know that until the investigation is complete, then those, an- those questions that I have won't be answered.
5: Do you think you'll ever understand? No. Investigators still have not released a motive, but we've learned the man arrested for the deadly shooting is a former UVA football player. According to UVA, in September, a student informed the university that the alleged gunman had talked about having a gun but never made threats and there were no reports of anyone actually seeing a gun. When officials looked into the claims, they discovered that he had been convicted of a misdemeanor concealed weapons violation the previous year. CNN has also reported he tried to buy a gun in 2018, and 2021 but was denied because of his age and the weapons violation. Do you think this could have been prevented? Absolutely. One month later, Virginia State Police still looking into what happened. The state's attorney general appointed a third party to independently review what led up to the shooting and as they wait for more answers, they're on a new mission in Perry's name, pushing for stricter gun laws and policies on college campuses across the country.
6: All the universities and the football world and the college football world join us in this fight.
5: And, you know, Jake, dad says that he is hopeful, hope being one of the many emotions he is sorting through as he navigates his grief. Mom was very quick to tell me that she feels that she is in the denial phase of her grief right now, a month later. I should also point that they are calling for more mental health awareness, making sure that people get the help they need when they need it.
1: So unfair. Santiago, thank you so much. Appreciate that report. Coming up on The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer, if you thought your family drama was bad, well, the royal family feud just got uglier with the latest episode of Harry and Meghan's documentary. Until tomorrow, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, not on TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. You can listen to The Lead Podcast from Once You Get Your Podcasts. I'll see you Friday.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level.